Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So I would recommend it to people who really, really love reality TV. Like if you are a Love Island or Big Brother fan, Iris Murdoch novels are for you. Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. And today it's Book of the Month time. And our chosen novel for November is The Black Prince by Iris Murdoch, who for many years was the answer to the quiz question, who's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize the most times. Uh, in fact, she still holds the record of six, although these days jointly with... Who was on the buzzers? Margaret Atwood. Uh, two, <laughs> two points, Joe. Uh, but uh, even so, Murdoch's uh, continuing status as a Booker Prize ledge... Uh, <laughs> Not ledge. Ledge. She's, she's a Booker Prize ledge, is why earlier this year the Booker Prize trophy was renamed the Iris. Uh, but before we joust with the Black Prince, see what I did there? Uh, maybe we should do a bit on Murdoch more generally, given that while well, she's certainly not forgotten now, she has perhaps faded a little since the time I remember, growing up as a bookish little fellow in the 1970s, uh, when she seemed to be pretty much the main writer of choice among clever grown-ups. But Joe, as this podcast keeps humiliatingly reminding me, I was born quite a long time before you, so what was her standing when you were first discovering grown-up books in what I guess was 2010s or something scary like that? I ask partly because that famous um, 1983 Grant a list of best of young British novelists with the likes of Julian Barnes, Martin Amis, Ian McEwan, Salman Rushdie, Kazuo Ishiguro, and even a few women, I think, uh, has uh, been seen ever since as fiction moving on to a, ge- a new generation. And maybe Murdoch was the leader of the generation it moved on from. Um, so was she still a big deal for people of your age? I don't know. The, the problem is, I don't. I think at that age, I had no conception of what Granté even was. <laughs> I guess it's not really the pursuit of most sixteen-year-olds. Uh, um, the way I came to Iris Murdoch is actually really random. Um, I lived in Florida at the time, and um, I think I remember a second-hand bookshop that was based in like a disused garage, and a parents of a friend of mine used to take us there to leave us for an hour so that they could be free to go do other things. I was impressed that the the way of looking after you was to dump you in a bookshop for an hour. Oh yeah, we were nerds. Um, And and it was amazing because there, there was no shelving. It was just piles and piles of books. And I remember finding a copy of The Sea, The Sea, and I had no idea who Iris Murdoch was. And I had no idea that The Sea, The Sea was a book winner. I didn't, I don't think now, I think I vaguely knew what the Booker Prize was then. Anyway, the cover then of that book, it was the first edition, weirdly enough, uh, was Hawkeye's The Wave, which I just studied in my AP Art History class. I kind of saw everything as a sign then. So I thought, oh, it's a sign that I found this novel. And here we are many years later, <laughs> 10 years later, talking about it. Um, picked it up, sort of put it aside for for two more years. 
and then read it one winter and just fell in love with it so deeply. I think it's sort of the case though that if you've read one Iris Murdoch novel, you've sort of read all of them in a way um, because she has a very specific style uh, and she has certain um, narrative devices that she keeps coming back to. So this idea of, you know, extramarital affairs, uh, sort of love squares. Usually they're love triangles, but in an Iris Murdoch novel, it's always, you know, the husband is having an affair with someone else, the wife is having an affair with someone else, and then, you know, maybe they'll like swap <laughs> midway through. Um, someone dies, someone ends up with documents that they shouldn't. Um, you can always, tell what an Iris Murdoch is but the delight of them is sort of the variety you never quite know how she's going to pull it off in the next novel uh, there's a good description by John Updike on Nuns and Soldiers but this is all books which it's all over books which is one man dies everybody else falls in love and nobody can help anything yes yes and there's always a, a lot of amazing dialogue uh, of just people relentlessly cutting across each other screaming you know oh get out get out I can't bear it anymore and then would you like a glass of wine <laughs> I must say with their dialogue and I'm not sure it's how people speak but it's how people speak in an Iris Murdoch novel isn't it and that kind of works I don't know do you know what I I, I read I th I'm sure I've spoken about it on this podcast before but it I also love uh, Rosemary Tonks and her novel The Bloater is very much like this sort of you know Iris Murdoch novels at least part of them tend to be set in kind of a London cultural scene, whether it's, you know, a kind of theatre scene in The Sea of the Sea or Westminster and The Nice and the Good, or in this case with The Black Prince, it's um, between Soho and, and Notting Hill. And um, there is that kind of, <laughs> I think most people would associate it with a Hampstead novel, but that there is that very posh, plummy way of talking and that sort of, almost like you're at the theatre. It's very Noel Coward in a way and I think it is a kind of tradition of, of novels of the time of you know maybe 60s or 70s London literary novels everybody always observes over like how do these characters make their money <laughs> it's like you know Monica's flat in Friends or something isn't yeah. it yeah, the, the, the people, are living, <laughs> people are living you know somehow really really well without obvious means of support perhaps because she's written so many like 26 novels uh, what, and I think you've read more of them than I have what, what, what are your favourites? Um, well, The Sea of the Sea is probably still a favourite because it was that initial discovery. Um, it's uh, narrated by a sort of <laughs> semi-retired theatre man called Charles Araby, who's retired to the sea to <laughs> think over his life and write his memoirs. And he, instead, he, he, he gets very obsessed with his first love. Um, she sort of reappears in his life and he has this like comically angelic view of her even though she's old and plain and sort of entirely boring he kidnaps her at, at some point and it, it's just mad also love a severed head which is sort of again another classic kind of murdoch story of a, a love square or even a, a love what's a five-sided object pentagon. like pentagon, oh, yeah. pentagon. Uh, um of um you know an extramarital affair you know, potentially something approaching incest and then an untimely death. <laughs> ah, the usual stuff then. Yeah. I, I know that is a big favourite with many of our fans. I have, I have read that. Um, I Murdoch would be really dismayed to know that I really like Under the Net because I think that there's this beautiful um, recording of her um, at the 92Y doing a Paris Review interview where she says, you know, I hate it when people say to me that they love my first novel because one sort of thinks everything's gone downhill since. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so we do a, a basic basic biography just for people who uh, don't don't know as much about her as as um, 
people might once have done. Uh, so she was born in Dublin, the only child of Irish Protestant parents. Uh, and when she was one, uh, the family moved to London. where Her dad worked as a clerk for the Ministry of Health. Uh, but she always, as she said throughout her life, that she always felt Irish, uh, although um, true to her Protestant roots, was no Republican when the troubles broke out. Um, but her extreme cleverness was clearly there from the early days at Badminton, a progressive girls' boarding school in Oxford. She edited a poetry book by the pupils and got W.H. Auden to write the foreword. Um, she then won a scholarship to Oxford where she scored a first-class degree in Greats, which is Latin, Greek, ancient history and philosophy. And later, she also won a scholarship to the prestigious uh, Vassar College in America, but wasn't allowed to go into the country because while at Oxford, she joined the Communist Party. Along Rotherham, probably, I believe, with her... With Kingsley Amis, <laughs> not, not necessarily thought of as a commie, but he joined the party with her as well, uh, her contemporary and a lifelong friend. Uh, she'd left the party by the time she was conscripted into the civil service, uh, in so because it was war, it was actual conscription. Yeah. Uh, in 1942, she worked in the Treasury, and then she joined the UN Refugee Service in Europe before returning to academia and teaching philosophy at Oxford from 1948 to 1963. And by... 1963, two other important things had happened in her life. She'd become a novelist, starting with, you know, my beloved Under the Net in 1954, uh, and continuing very prolifically after that, ending up uh, with, as you said, James 26 um, novels, which is uh, an unusually high number for a literary novelist. Um, and there are some people who think she perhaps wrote too much, including possibly her, as we may discuss when we come to The Black Prince. And, and as, as we say, six of those um, books were book of shortlisted. The Nice and the Good in 1969, the first year of the prize. Bruno's Dream in 1970, the second year of the prize. Black Prince in 1973. Your beloved, The Sea, The Sea in 1978, which won. Good Apprentice in 1985. And The Book and the Brotherhood in 1987. And seeing as she'd already written ten novels before the book had began, including um, A Severed Head. Beloved, severed head <laughs> They're the, all beloved. Okay. I love them all. And The, be the Bell, which I really like. That was pre-Booker. I mean, who knows how many she might have been shortlisted if the prize had begun earlier. Uh, she also wrote several works of philosophy. Uh, and uh, I was interested, although I was slightly saddened that in our time, uh, Radio 4 episode about her uh, with Melvin Bragg and his guests um, suggested that it's as a philosopher that she might be best remembered in the end. Well, the, the second thing about her is her fascinating love life. Actually, if I think about it now very ahead of the times, ahead of the curve love life, what we might now refer to, or maybe it was referred to then as well, who knows, James, you can correct me, is this sort of polyamorous open marriage. I wasn't around <laughs> in the 50s, James. <laughs> <laughs> or the 40s. <laughs> I might be old. <laughs> well, we don't mention this for reasons of gossip or tittle-tattle. No way. Um, but, but it does, it, it is relevant to a lot of her fiction. Because uh, John Updike, who's one of the problematic American geniuses stroke dinosaurs I keep mentioning. Uh, he considered Murdoch the preeminent uh, English novelist of the second half of the 20th century, uh, but he also thought, quote, a tumultuous love life had been a long tutorial in suffering, power, treachery and bliss. The romantic seed for her was like the sea for Conrad or war for Hemingway, a treasury of essential impression. So basically that, that complicated love life informs all of her fiction, which is why we're mentioning it not for reasons of as you say, gossip, that would be terrible. Um, so it fed into more or less all of her fiction with one of her central themes being a sentence she wrote in uh, The Sacred and Profane Love Machine, The Erotic Life is Never Still. The news that love is everywhere, violent, protean, consuming, comical, cruel, never grew stale for her, Updike said, and uh, Harold Bloom, another big American critic, called her an original and endlessly provocative theorist of the tragic comedy of sexual love. And uh, that love life seems to have continued even after she 
married John Bailey in 1956, an Oxford don. He's rarely described anywhere uh, without the words mild-mannered being used. And and that marriage to, to Bailey brings us, of course, to what I think I and a lot of other people are worried has, has become her legacy in a way, in a strange way, that she ended up with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, uh, I know that's not a phrase you want to use, but <laughs> I think a lot of people now think of Iris Murdoch as someone who basically chortled in front of the Teletubbies. Um, and we know this because of Bailey's memoir, Iris, which was published in 1998 when she was still alive and later adapted into the hit movie, Iris, starring Kate Winslet as the young Murdoch and Judy Dench as the older one, uh, a film, as someone once said, that showed Iris Murdoch only as either bonkers or bonking. Yeah, I hate that film. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hate that film too. And do you, do you think, I mean, I've got, uh, fortunately, everyone's dead now. But do you think this was John Bailey's sort of passag uh, revenge for her infidelity and for her greater fame? Maybe not even all that pass. I mean, can, can I give you a couple of quotes from, quotes yeah, from the book? Yeah, you can, okay, this is from, okay, so Iris was praised for its gentleness and its love. But I do wonder if its motives were, were quite so pure. You know, there's a bit like, you know, I feel the whole book is, look, 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 not so clever now, are you? I mean, maybe, maybe that's a bit ferocious. But there's one bit where, like, for example, she tells him about her lovers. And John Bailey says this in a sort of, I think, faux, gentle, slightly weird way. I was really very cast down by everything she had just been telling me. There seemed so many of them. These fortunate persons, who at some time or other had been the recipient of Iris's kindness, they had desired her and not been rejected. And again, is, is this really an admiring bit? She, he says that when, she, when, he, when he's ill, he says, what I appreciated too was Iris's complete indifference to the womanly image of a helpmate. She found no bother at all in getting on with it when I was ill. <laughs> do, you think he, do you think he's really pleased about that? Oh, okay, just one more. I got there's loads of them. There's a bit, the bit where they they chant, they sing together a song about cuckolding from Shakespeare, while they're driving in the car, and he thinks this is the most tremendous fun. But he is essentially being cuckolded quite a lot, I think. And then he finds a house, and that he loves that she doesn't, and he says uh, she acted as if her enthusiasm matched my own. I saw that it didn't, of course, but I was obdurate. Why shouldn't I be obdurate for once? And then when she, when she's actually ill, I think this is a chilling phrase. He says, "Now we are together for the first time." He's got it now, now that she's got Alzheimer's. And, and in, in The Black Prince, there's a lot of women who kind of get exposed at their worst. Go on to The Black Prince in a minute, listeners, never fear. When they're, they're, they're exposed at their worst, they're, they're feeling down or they're hysterical or they're upset or they're ill, and their husbands sort of invite people around to sort of look after them or see them. And the women hate it. There's one who says, he asks you around to see it all. All men despise all women, really. And then a, a, a separate woman ashamed oh ashamed showing me to all these people I, I sort of feel that iris would have been ashamed ashamed that she was being shown to all these people by by john bailey uh, that, am i being too harsh on him do you think no i think that's entirely fair <laughs> down with john bailey <laughs> <laughs> and and and, and that, that that is what people think of iris murdoch this well i don't know i i, I think maybe it's a bit dramatic to say that that's oh, yeah, all okay. that people think yeah, of, of iris murdoch because she is after all also a respected philosopher the author of 26 novels um i also i mean my prevailing image of iris murdoch um really is just of this incredible woman with like the <laughs> most unkempt bowl cut you've ever seen in your life um saying the most brilliant things to camera you know s stern intimidating until all of a sudden you realize that she's the funniest person in the room and i think i don't know i'm so jealous of anyone who managed to be taught by her in the, in the brief time that she was still at university i think it must have been 
very, very frightening until all of a sudden you realised that you were the luckiest person alive. And it might, this might be ungallant or possibly even slightly worse, but she doesn't look an obvious seductress, does she? But it's one, bit, <laughs> one, in her, one bit in her biography where she says, one thing I'm confident of, I can seduce anybody. And I, I would, A, that seems to have been true in her, in her life, and B, certainly true of her books, I think. Yeah. Well, it, it's not all about looks. It's a vibe as well, James. You know? <laughs> Really? <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, no, maybe it is. Should we move on to, rather hastily to the Black Prince? Uh, and uh, do you want to tell us the basic? The, the basic plot. Of, yeah, no, is that, there that's, a that's, basic that's, plot? That, that's hard. That, that is a hard one. I'm going to start out by saying, this sounds a bit strange, but I think you'll know where I'm coming from, James. Anyone who listened to our interview with Graham McRae Burnett and has read his bloody project will kind of understand the, the form that um, the Black Prince takes um, there are multiple documents which alter your perception of the main body of the narrative in quite ingenious ways and there is a sort of crime at the heart that's gradually revealed to you. So our main character is um, Bradley Pearson who, depending who you ask, is a writer. Um, if you ask him, he's definitely a writer. If you ask him, he, he is definitely a writer, although I think his idea of writing depends very heavily on not writing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to come back to that, but yeah. We will come back to that. Um, but the book opens on two uh, sort of editorial notes, one from a Mr. P. Loxus, who is his editor, and one from Bradley himself. There are some quite uh, salient lines in those editorial notes, um, which become ever more sort of relevant as you go through the novel. So um, Mr. P. Loxius says that art gives charm to terrible things as perhaps its glory, perhaps its curse. Art is a doom. It has been the doom of Bradley Pearson. And Bradley Pearson himself says, all art deals with the absurd and aims at the simple. Good art speaks truth. Indeed is truth, perhaps the only truth. I have endeavored in what follows to be wisely artful and artfully wise. Which brings us on to the main body of the Black Prince, which is sort of a five-way love story. <laughs> Bradley Pearson is uh, is making plans to leave London to to work on his novel, fi having finally retired from the tax office. Um, he yeah. just. He even, even that's quite good, isn't he? Introduces himself as a writer. He realises he's been a tax man all his life. Yes. But actually, he's gonna, now he's going to write his great novel. Yes, now he's going to write his great work. When all of a sudden he uh, is uh, intruded upon by his ex-wife's brother, Francis, who has arrived to give him the news that Christian, said ex-wife, is back in town and may call in on him. Shortly after, while Francis is still uh, <laughs> quite unwantedly in the room, Bradley is further interrupted by a phone call from his uh, friend slash protege slash rival, Arnold Baffin, who says he may have killed his wife. He's not sure. Francis happens to be a, a doctor of sorts, although he's been disbarred for handing out dodgy prescriptions. Bradley takes him over to Arnold's place, manages to um, revive Rachel Baffin, draw her out of the bedroom, manages to, to uh, have a conversation with Rachel, which includes that... Um, line that you quoted from of he's invited you all around to look at me in this terrible state and then goes back home to find uh his sister priscilla on his doorstep who has just left her husband roger roger is shacked up uh in fact has been shacked up for quite some time with a younger lover named marigold who is now pregnant um 
And this becomes a very salient point for Priscilla's very fragile mental health. She is suicidal from the very beginning of the novel, uh, but no one seems to believe her. No one, particularly Bradley, seems to believe in the concept of mental health in this book. Um, Bradley also takes a dim view of someone going off with a younger woman at this point, doesn't he? Yes, which is very hypocritical of him. Because? Because... <laughs> it's very hard to track all the people falling in love with each other <laughs> over the course of this novel. But uh, Bradley eventually falls for Arnold and Rachel's 20-year-old daughter, Julian, by way of giving her lessons on Shakespeare, particularly Hamlet, which is very pertinent. But this happens only after Rachel has fallen in love with him and he has sort of tolerated it but tolerated it as far as sort of groping her breasts in bed a bit (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile of course uh, Arnold has fallen in love with Christian his ex-wife and he yes yeah and according to Bradley's telling of this novel Christian may be sort of in love with Bradley as well yeah uh not only that but Christian's brother Francis might be in love with Bradley it's not clear he's certainly very devoted to him um and Bradley might be in love with Arnold (laughs) (laughs) yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, no, no, we, we exaggerate not at all. So, but, so, 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 so that, and that all builds up to one sort of major crime. Crescendo. We, yeah, <laughs> we know there's going to be a, a big crime. We don't know what it is, and then we hear it from his point of view, uh, from Bradley's point of view, and yes. then all the other characters then comment at the end about whether he's telling the truth or not. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I think I think we could go on for much longer about who. Uh, the various tangles, but I think that that's the basic plot, isn't it? Yes, and this is so true of all Iris Murdoch novels, is that essentially what you have is a cast of about five to ten characters who are just having the most chaotic, messy... I believe what uh, uh, Jada Pinkett-Smith would call entanglements (laughs) (laughs) Um, with one another. And you'd think it's sort of hard to keep in your head, but honestly, part of it is a bit like watching... Love Island or like reality TV or just like gobsmacked and um, my my partner was turning to me while I was reading this book in bed and he kept going god this must be amazing like you keep gasping you keep sort of like jumping up and then like you know shaking your head and groaning and laughing it's it's exactly like what you look like when you watch Love Island <laughs> no, that's, well, that's interesting and also the fact that we're laughing as we're saying so-and-so's in love with so-and-so's also in love with so-and-so's might be in love with I mean it is meant to be funny I think Iris Murdoch in a way thinks all of this you know the power of erotic love is on the one hand um you know dangerous and powerful and treacherous and um, damaging and also hilarious. Yes, um, she might be right. Now, can, can I, and on on the hilarity point, can I ask you a question? So, most of it's narrated by Bradley Pierce, Pearson, and he's sometimes described as self-mocking. Yes, but do you think he is in, in on the joke? Let me let me let me a couple of things. So he uses inverted commas for more or less any word or phrase coined since about ni- nineteen hundred, doesn't he? So he says uh, this might this this book. Because we, we know that something sensational happens in it that he's involved in. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Says this book might well prove my only quote bestseller, partly because he's become quote front page news. And then when he's describing his um, his wife, he says Christian was a rather quote sexy woman. And then he's, he's he's got all these like of courses. Of course, the mind of the lover abhors accident. And the, the f- when Julian, like, uh, Iris Murdoch, I think famous for female characters with boys' names, but anyway, Julian, who he, the twenty year old girl he falls for, he, he says so named comma. I hardly need explain after Julian of Norwich, <laughs> <laughs> and also when he when he's when he and is he joking? Okay, there's this bit where 
after he's sort of failed with Rachel, she's tried to seduce him and slightly failed. And then on the way out, he meet, he bumps into her 20-year-old daughter and bu- decides to buy her a pair of boots and yeah. sees their thighs as a result of buying a pair of boots. Yeah. And um, uh, experiences, quote, the anti-gravitational aspiration <laughs> of the male organ. Yes. One of the oddest and most unnerving things in nature. Yes. <laughs> and later when he takes Julian out, he goes. He, 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 they go to the Covent Garden Opera. He is... Um, He's so sort of overcome with emotion, he hasn't told her that he loves her at this point, uh, that, he, that he vomits, and he goes sort of running off. And, uh, but he stops to say, selection of a place to be sick in is always a matter of personal importance mm. and can add an extra tormenting dimension to the graceless horror of vomiting. And after he finds a place by a pile of peach boxes and throws up, we have a paragraph beginning, vomiting is a curious experience, entirely sui generis. And he goes on to explain why. Now, obviously, I think this is all very funny, but surely is Iris Murdoch being funny rather than Bradley Pearson, do you think? Um, yes, I think I would agree with you, actually. There's this um, bit sort of midway through. Um, uh, what uh, Bradley Pearson often does is sort of um, make these little interludes to address uh, his editor, P. Loxious, directly. But, you know, obviously it seems as though he's also addressing the reader. I guess Loxious is his reader, but we're yeah. his reader. Anyway, um, he uh, there's a point at which during one of these interludes he says... Um, it was not frivolous to connect my sense of an impending revelation with my anxiety about my work. If some great change was pending in my life, this could not but be part of my development as an artist, since my development as an artist was my development as a man. And then he says, um, It had often, when I thought most profoundly about it, occurred to me that I was a bad artist because I was a coward, would now courage and life prefigure and perhaps induce courage and art. And I think you're right, it, it is Murdoch being funny rather than Bradley Pearson being funny because for him, there is no separation between... It, I think he's telling us these things, you know, what it's like to vomit, what it's like to get an erection in these very lofty terms, very earnestly because it speaks to his moral character in some sort of way, you know. There's this bit in uh, the editor's note that Bradley Pearson provides where he says um, that he's going to... Uh, you know, the, the tale that follows is uh, told as though it were happening to him in the moment. Yeah, he hopes he has g- kept his gift pure, which to me is sort of, you know... I think the other thing that kind of gives it away is that he is a, kind of like a sickening misogynist. Um, yeah, so, I mean, he is misogynist. He, he thinks all these women are ghastly. But then that bit at the be- at the end where they all have their say, Christian and Rachel and... Mm-hmm. and um, Julian, they are all ghastly. Does that does, so again? This is, might be an. This might not be. This might yet again not be an either or, but a both and. But I, I do think that Iris Murdoch is not is not entirely distanced from Bradley's view of these. I don't know because I think she emasculates him to to a massive degree as well, um, and him and Francis as well. I mean, like um, you know. Bradley's always sort of insisting that everyone should, you know, repress their feelings always. But you know that part where um, Francis starts telling Bradley, you know, I've been so unhappy in my life when they struck me off the register. I thought I'd die of unhappiness. I've never had a happy relationship. Never. I crave for love. Everybody does. It's as natural as pissing and I've never had a bloody crumb of it. Um, And Bradley just goes, stop talking this foul rubbish. Try to be a man. And, you know, Francis is there going, I can't. Oh, God, it's just the bloody pain. I'm not like other people. My life just doesn't work. And Bradley goes, I'm going to bed. 
you got your sleeping bag there. You know, shut up, shut up, shut yeah, up. He, he absolutely does. And Bradley, and Bradley seems regards like nervous breakdowns and hysterics are sort of in some ways self-indulgent, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Well, I mean, Bradley's not, not um, exempt from having a sort of nervous breakdown or his own bout of hysterics towards the end of the novel as well. And I don't think that's sort of... You know, the, the men are just as contemptible as yeah, the women in this sure. novel. Sure. Um, but I think, th I don't know, maybe this uh, this is my bias as a, as a woman reading this novel, but there's a very sort of <laughs> self-conscious aspect of how, the way in which men are terrible in this book. That actually is expressed by um, the women outwardly, whether it's in the afterwards um, by Christian um you know, saying that she completely disagreed with uh, Bradley's portrayal of her as a horrible wife. You know, Bradley says that he left her and she says, no, well, I left him because we were just both very depressed. He didn't make me happy. Uh, or indeed, you know, Rachel, um, after she's just been uh, hit with a poker by Arnold, her husband, and she says, you know, all men hate women, really. Um, you know, he, he shoots me down. He beats me all the time. All the men in this novel cheat on their wives relentlessly and and then say oh you know i don't i don't cheat on her presently so i haven't really in the past well, I just cheat on the husbands a bit but no, <laughs> you, you are right there's no there's certainly um, but it is interesting though uh, an interesting fact about iris murdoch is a lot of first person narrators in her in her many many novels not one of them is a woman mm. she only ever does male first person narrators who do get the pits taken remorselessly out of them i think um can i can i introduce another Biggish theme at this mm -hmm. late stage. The, I think about discussing the Black Prince. I think is in sort of half an hour. It's like discussing <laughs> you know Middlemarch in half an hour or something. It's a, just a massive book. I remember saying this yeah. is one of the best books I can remember reading for a long, long time. Yeah. But one one thing I think that is definitely going on is Iris Murdoch's there's a sort of self portrait or at least self discussion from Murdoch herself. So um, Bradley Pearson's theory of Hamlet is. Shakespeare is passi passionately exposing himself, speaking as few artists can speak, in the first person, yet at the pinnacle of artifice. Mm. And I think, again, this might be one of the things that Bradley Pearson, that Iris Murdoch agrees with Bradley Pearson about, and it's certainly what's going on in, in this book, I think. Because Arnold Baffin, who is, you may not have mentioned, I think, yet, um, is a very successful novelist. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, according, to his, his, according to Julian, his, his daughter, uh, she says about him, he lives in a sort of rosy haze with Jesus and Mary and Buddha and Shiva and the Fisher King, all chasing round and round, dressed as people in Chelsea. Now, <laughs> now that's, that's about the most savage thing you could say about Iris Murdoch's books, really. Um, there's, there, we have a summary of, of, of another of his books where basically people talk about religion forever until someone's killed by a force, falling crucifix. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the, um, he's... She, uh, sorry, Baffin is constantly criticised by everyone, as Iris Murdoch was, for writing too much and too fast. Um, and uh, Bradley says of him, Arnold, I regret to say, saw art as fun. Yeah. Um, so there's, everybody agrees that he wrote too fast and too, um, and too much. At the same time, there's definitely a strand in the novel which asks what's wrong with writing a lot. Um, so, you know, early on, Bradley says of Arnold, he wrote easily, producing every year a book which pleased the public taste. Wealth, fame followed, uh, which is quite Murdochy. Uh, Arnold, I regret to say, he says, saw art as fun. Where the joke, you know, why is that a matter of regret? Is that really so bad? And I think we're definitely meant to draw a comic contrast between Arnold Baffin, who in some ways is preposterous with his, you know, seeing Jesus and Mary and things in Chelsea, yeah. but with, with Bradley, who, when he introduces himself as a writer, again, pretty pompously, right at the beginning, says, um, a writer is indeed the simplest and also most accurate 
general description of me. Insofar as I'm also a psychologist, an amateur philosopher, a student of human affairs, I am so because these things are part of being the kind of writer that I am. But one thing that isn't part of being the kind of writer that he is is actually writing. <laughs> so, so, so he says, he says, I have, I hope, and believe, kept my gift pure. Uh, the most potent and sacred command which can be laid upon any artist is the command, wait. There are a hazard saints of art who have simply waited mutely all their lives rather than profane the purity of a single page. <laughs> so, and, and it, it really reminded me that, I don't know if you've read The Debts of Pleasure by John Lanchester. I haven't, no. Uh, there's a, a similarly, uh, I wonder, if in fact, it was almost influenced by the Black Prince, but there's a, there's a guy in that who was trying to impress a, a young woman with, his, with exactly that theory. He says, an artist should be assessed by what he doesn't do, painted by his abandoned and unattempted canvases, a writer by his refusal to publish or indeed to inscribe. And then the woman replies to him, yeah, but how can you tell? How does anyone know about the books you aren't writing? What's so different from just sitting there on your bum? Yeah. Iris Murdoch is on the one hand saying, maybe I do write too much. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe I, you know, I, I, I have got these Arnold Baffian tendencies. But it's better than just sort of not writing anything and sitting around on your bum. Yes, I think she, she addresses that head on uh, quite early on. Um, Pearson writes a sort of scathing review of um, Baffin's latest novel, um, to which uh, Baffin at some point responds. Uh, it doesn't get published, but he reads it nevertheless and responds, you know, you and you aren't the only one. Every critic tends to do this. Speak as if you're addressing a person of invincible complacency. You speak as if the artist has never realised his faults at all. Uh, in fact, most artists understand their own weaknesses far better than the critics do. And this I found very touching. Um, Baffin says, I believe that the stuff has some merits or I wouldn't publish it. But I live, I live with an absolutely continuous sense of failure. I'm always defeated, always. Every book is the wreck of a perfect idea. The years pass and one has only one life. If one has a thing at all, one must do it and keep on and on and on trying to do it better. And an aspect of this is that any artist has to decide how fast to work. I do not believe that I would improve if I wrote less. The only result of that would be that there would be less of whatever there is and less of me. I could be wrong, but I judge this and stand by the judgment. Do you understand? An alternative would be to do what you do, finish nothing, publish nothing, nourish a continual grudge against the world and live with an unrealized idea of perfection which makes you feel superior to those who try and fail. So I want to connect this. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. That, I want that, to that connect, is the rebuttal, isn't it? Yeah, and I want to connect this actually to... Um, Funnily enough, the section about vomiting, okay. which is, you know, not just physical, but also, you know, it sounds cliche, but kind of metaphorical. The the point at which Bradley Pearson, you know, vomits his guts out in front of Julian is also the part at which that sort of idea of repressing everything, yeah. you know, of never writing a word kind of breaks for him. And yeah. he begins to say everything. Um, there's, there's this really brilliant uh, kind of uh, passage where, where he seems to take on a very uh, Baffian, <laughs> in fact, perspective on speed being conducive to producing some kind of plot. Um, so, you know, he's, he's vomited. He's told Julian that uh, he's in love with her. And then there's this really tragicomic scene where, you know, he, he leans over to, you know, kiss her on the cheek and hold her wrist to convey his intentions. And she says, would you like to come to the opera with me? Um you know, someone else got me tickets. And he goes, oh, who's the someone else? And she says, it's my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, he, and uh, Bradley Pearson goes home devastated. And then he realises, um, I had, in fact, 
lived through almost the whole history of being in love in just over two days. I say almost the whole history because there is yet more to come. The condensed phenomenology of the business had been enacted within me. On the first day, I was simply a saint. I was so warmed and vitalised by sheer gratitude that I overflowed the charity. I was so privileged and glorified that resentment, every memory of any wrong done to me, seemed inconceivable. I wanted to go around touching people, blessing them, communicating my great happiness, the good news, the secret of how the whole universe was a place of joy and freedom, filled and running over with selfless rapture. And um, on it goes. And, you know, he says that there's the counterpart to that, which is that then his world was crushed, etc. But this is the point at which he stops sort of pontificating and starts actually producing maybe well he produces the novel at a later point but he starts talking to people he actually starts acting rather than thinking and repressing yeah, yeah. I, I think obviously we haven't plumbed the depths of black prince because that might be the work of our, of our lifetime but uh i think we've we've enjoyed it joe would that be fair Oh God, I love it. As I said, I think Iris Murdoch is like the best winter read possible because it's just absorbing and it's chaotic and crazy and it makes you laugh and it, it staves off my seasonal affective disorder by a good week, you know, reading a Iris Murdoch novel. Uh, I feel slightly ashamed to say this in the Booker Prize podcast where the Iris is about to be awarded. Uh, but <laughs> I, I'd only read before uh, Under the Net, which I thought was pretty good, and The Bell, which I thought was pretty good. I mean, like very good. But the Black Prince, unbelievable. Uh, apparently, the seventies um, is meant to be a pomp, so I'm going to read more of our seventies books, including The Sea, The Sea, mm. and I will give it a severed head a go. Uh, Joe, I think it's uh, it's pretty clear that I'd recommend this book to anybody who is it's ready for a bit of a wrestle. It's not an easy book. The, yeah. the, the consensus seems to be at, at the moment that it is their best novel, but but maybe not a good start because it is quite complicated. Who would you, who would you recommend it to? I think this seems counterintuitive because, as you said, there's this idea of an Iris Murdoch novel being something that's read by very high-minded intellectual people. Um, but when you break it down, honestly, they are just really funny books about people ill-advisedly shagging. So I would recommend it to people who really, really love reality TV. Like, if you are a Love Island or Big Brother fan, Iris Murdoch novels are for you. They're just drama and people, you know, saying the wrong thing, kissing the wrong person and, you know, occasionally ending up killing someone. <laughs> and that being tragic and silly and also hilarious. Yeah. That's it for this week. You can find out more about our November Book of the Month, The Black Prince by R.S. Murdoch at thebookerprizes.com. If you decide to give it a go, you can join the conversation. It's our Facebook book group at facebook.com slash thebookerprizes. Next week, we'll be talking to the 2022 Booker Prize winner, Shehan Karanatilaka, just days before this year's winner announcement on the 26th of November. And finally, remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at The Booker Prizes. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Supi production for The Booker Prizes. Mm-hmm.